0: Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. This week we are joined by sports broadcasting royalty. You'll know his name, you'll know his voice. Mr. Steve Ryder is our guest this week. Renowned broadcaster across many different sports. Of course, we love him for his F1 and British touring car work, but the world will know him for covering all sorts of sports series as well as shows like Sports Night and Grandstand. Thank you so much to you guys who continue to download and listen. If you like it, please do leave us a review. It really helps us to get bigger and enjoy. A very warm welcome
1: to episode 31 of the Motormouth podcast. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 10th of June. Before we introduce today's guest, I want to remind you guys that we have an app and we have a website and we've just made some updates, so go check it out. Search Motormouth on your app store or visit motormouth.club. You can join up, make a profile, start following other folks and check out the latest racing news, opinion pieces and exclusive MMTV videos featuring the ugly mug of my cohort, Harry, um, which are all now up and running on the app. So go and have a look. With that said, I now have to dive through the World Wide Web to
0: link up with my trusty, tall, talented, talkative and tenacious co-host Harry Benjamin. How are you? I'm very well, Tim. Thank you as ever for the very glamorous and luxurious introductions. Um, I'm doing well. Back in the cupboard. Uh, I really have to slouch in here to fit in uh, this suitcase cupboard but um, it works well for the audio quality. Um, yeah, no, all good. It's just, just getting on with life really but I mean it's you that's got the big news coming. Yes,
1: well if, if I disappear at any point during this recording you know why because due date for um, Sylvie baby number three is um, less than 72 hours away. So um, oh. it's, uh, it's it's all go. And um, if you if hear... that door behind you uh, it, flies open any yeah. minute. Uh. <laughs> I'm out. I'm tapping out. You'll just have to carry on on your own. Um, with that said, shall I bring in today's guest? Absolutely. So Steve Ryder uh, is one of the UK's most recognised and loved sports, um, and more importantly to us, motorsport presenters. Uh, he's hosted basically everything, every sport, ever, including the Olympics, grandstand, sports personality of the year, rugby, and of course our beloved Formula One. Without any further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Steve Ryder to the Motormouth podcast. Steve, how are you doing?
2: Very well indeed, and uh, good luck to you. I'll be brief uh, because obviously <laughs> your, your attention is elsewhere. No, I wish you all the best with that. Thanks, it's, uh, yeah. It's uh, happy time. Number three, it's going
0: yeah. to be chaotic in this household. Yeah, uh, <laughs> do not envy you one bit. Um, but Steve, welcome to the Motor Mouth Podcast. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, first off, you know, we're all in sort of whatever you call it these days, semi-lockdown, half-lockdown, whatever you want to uh, label it. How have you been getting on with
2: life uh, in this new world? Yeah, fine. It's uh, I mean I wouldn't say it's uh, it, it is a huge difference from my normal schedule because ever since you know I became a freelance broadcaster, you always work from home or you work mm-hmm. from location, uh, and if programs aren't happening, then then there's no need to go to race circuits or studios or so on. So uh, I work from here. I mean not this room in particular because we can't get a signal out of my study, but uh, uh, you know I'm used to working at home and uh, I can work around it. The frustrating thing is. Uh, the number of offices that are closed down and the normal uh, you know routes of communication Mm. struggle but um, uh, we're getting through it we're nearly there I think
0: have you been missing uh, racing are you excited to get back towards the end of this year
2: yeah it's uh, I mean for me the, the schedule I say is only these days, but it's the British Touring Car Championship. We were on the very brink of the first race before lockdown started. We'd done the, uh, you know, the pre-season stuff and we were up at Silverstone and so on. And uh, and then the curtain came down. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, all credit to Toka. They've, they've really got their act together in conjunction with ITB. And we do seem to have a fairly... You know, touchwood bulletproof schedule for mm. for getting the thing back on the road at the beginning of August. You know, much can happen between now and then, but we're looking very carefully uh, at what happens with other sports and with Formula One in particular. But um, but hopefully we'll be back in action in August. Good, good to hear. Now, listen, before we touch on um,
1: British Touring Cars and other parts of your career, let's let's wind the clock back a bit. Um, so, take us back to um, young Steve. I'm talking very young Steve. Um, where, where was home when you were when you were growing up as a child, um, and what hints were there for what was to come for you? Was there any indication that you would end up in the broadcasting world and the sporting world? And take us back to those days.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, my passport says I was born in Dartford, and probably Wikipedia says I was born in Dartford. I've never been to Dartford in my life. Uh, I was born in... Uh, <laughs> it does say that on Wikipedia, by the way. In Dartford nursing home. And uh, no, I grew up in South East London, right. uh, around Charlton and Blackheath and that sort of area. Uh, and as for indications of what was to come, I played a bit of football, football. Um, uh, in my youth and a bit of cricket, none of which to, was to any high standard. Uh, but I had a bit of a, the gift of the gab and I could write a bit. So um, so when I left school, I left school on the Friday uh, and joined the local newspaper in south-east London on on the Monday uh, as a sports reporter, largely covering football. I was covering Charlton and Millwall and Crystal Palace. And there was no sort of real you know, indication that broadcasting was going to be a route because... Back then, and uh, and I shudder to say it, this was 1968, uh, local radio hadn't really started, let alone yeah. anything else. Uh, so there was no assumption that, um, uh, that broadcasting could be a possibility. But then when that eventually came on stream, I, I did a few things. When London Broadcasting started, uh, I was one of the first in the door and working for the sports team there. And that's when the broadcasting side Uh, started and uh, you know like everyone else you know you struggle in the first six months but the great thing was that uh, you know with a fledgling broadcast operation like LBC everyone was experiencing it for the first time so we all learned together and uh, you know there were some significant names who came through it uh, as well from that era. John Snow was one, Peter Allen and so on Um, and that was me off and running. Uh, Do you want me to carry on with the David Copperfield stuff?
1: (laughs) I'm curious, uh, with the football stuff, who's your team?
2: Uh, Growing up, just up the hill from the valley, I'm a Charlton man. Okay. And uh, I was, um, my one claim to fame... Is that? Well, I played for Charlton Reserves once. Oh, very good. Uh, as a goalkeeper, you say very good. It was only because I was covering them and they were a man short. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the versatile. Yeah, listen, listen, you know, we, we, you know, we're not talking Liverpool
0: or United. Yet. Uh,
2: but um uh, I've got a picture which I should have brought out for you, but it's uh, uh, when I was at the local paper, we had a goalkeeper at Charlton named Graham Tutt who got a very bad eye injury and he had to re- sadly retire from the game. So we staged a testimonial for him at the Valley. He got the injury up at Sunderland. So we brought the Sunderland team down to play in this uh, testimonial, got 19,000 there. And uh, the preamble was a little match uh, against the variety club or the showbiz team or whatever they call themselves. Uh, but who was going to play them? So we decided to put together... A team just of London goalkeepers, <laughs> all, all playing out on the field. And you had Bob Wilson, you had Pat Jennings, you had Peter Panetti, all out on. Alex Stepney played, uh, a young Mervin Day, and so on. Uh, and the unanimous vote was, I should go in goal. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, we had we had eighteen and a half thousand there, and I was behind this, you know, stellar lineup of you know the best goalkeepers in the world, effectively. Um, I conceded three goals from Bilotti alone. Oh, that's that's not good. <laughs> it was, oh, it was no. the end of my career, but uh, <laughs> oh, short-lived. How
1: how tall yeah. are you, by the way? I mean, you don't strike me as you know six foot five. I yeah, might I think, be wrong. You know, yeah, I'm sitting down about, yes. six foot <laughs> five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll take that. <laughs> uh, five eight, I think. Yeah, For, I mean, uh, yeah. The, not necessarily the correct stature for a goalkeeper but you know I was uh, I
2: was about half the height of every outfield player um, but, um, but you were uh, agile
0: I can tell you right now being 6 foot 5 does not make you a good goalie I was awful in goal I retired from uh, the B team under 12 uh, football team at school that was my last uh, outing as a goalie I was absolutely <laughs> dreadful and I'm 6 foot 5 with size 16 feet you'd think I'd make a decent goalie but no yeah
2: well you couldn't get down to the low shots I couldn't get up to the high ones know uh, yeah, between us
0: we, yeah we we could have managed between us, yeah. Well, um, let's let's. Uh, that, that's a great uh, insight into how it sort of started. And then, where did the the switch over to being in front of the screen and, and beginning to broadcast on TV come about?
2: Well, that was nineteen. Uh, 19- 77. uh, I was working at uh, LBC. I I still had very little to do with motorsport because Mm. motorsport and radio weren't a a natural fit. Uh, And in 1977, uh, a job was advertised in television. I mean, it just doesn't happen these days. Uh, At Anglia Television, they they were looking for a uh, an assistant sports editor. Oh yeah, that building's still going strong, I think, as well uh, in well, Norwich. Yeah. The, the building, the old post office building uh, in Norwich, is is still there, but uh, yeah, it contains very little of Anglia Television. Mm. Um, so I applied for this job, and we had, uh, and it got down to a short list of uh, three or four. I, I can't remember who the fourth one was, uh, but the rest of the shortlist was Alan Parry. You know, who uh, commentator on Sky still, uh, Tony Adamson, who went on to uh, present the radio coverage of Wimbledon, uh, and myself, and uh, and I was lucky enough to get the job, and so started in television, and that really is where is where the motorsport came in, because being based at Norwich, I mean, you had some, you know great football stories to tell as well, uh, but to go out with a film camera to places like. Silverstone and in particular Snetterton, uh, you, you realised you know, how much depth there was uh, to an average race meeting, how many human stories there were to be told. It wasn't sort of the one-dimensional football coverage and so on. Uh, and I grew to get more and more involved in, in in what was happening with the bikes and the cars at Snetterton. And of course, down the road also, you had um, Lotus, uh catering of a And 77, 78... Colin Chapman, Mario Andretti, Ronnie Peterson, and we started to do more and more work with uh, the team and developing programming um, uh, with the team. Got to, I wouldn't say I got to know Colin Chapman well, but you know, you're able to, you mm. know, have some fairly sort of privileged access. And with all all that sort of raw material, it, you know, it was hard not to become a uh, a motorsport fan, and that and that really is where it all began. Were
1: you a motorsport fan? Prior to that, or was that where it kicked it off? The interest—that's
2: I mean, where it kicked it. I mean, you were aware that you know, living in southeast London, um, uh, you were conscious that something was going on at Crystal Palace and so on, and you could occasionally hear the, uh, you know, the helicopters going over to Brands Hatch and so on. I was thinking the other day the first motorsport experience I suppose I had was when living in southeast London, my brother and I went to. Uh, I think we entered as a, as the cub group, the cub pack we were in, it was a soapbox derby uh, in a, in a park in Eris. And this would be about 1955, six, I suppose. Uh, and the one thing I remember was that the guest of honor who was presenting the prizes was Stuart Lewis Evans, right? Uh, the driver who was later to lose his life in, uh, Morocco. And, uh, And I've often thought, you know, for some reason, I remember Stuart Lewis Evans being there as as being the first racing driver I'd ever met. But the weird thing about that was that you would think, well, if Stuart Lewis Evans was there, Bernie Eccleston must have been right alongside, you know, because Bernie was his manager. And I thought, well, that's a weird thing to look back on. Yeah. Wow. Getting a prize in a soapbox derby in 55 from Bernie Eccleston (laughs) was now, it's all come full circle now.
0: So you, I mean, you, you, you just don't get those kind of stories uh, these days, I don't think. But, you know, going up through the ranks in broadcasting and, and dipping your toe into, you know, pretty much every sport that was coming your way, did you have anyone that you particularly admired growing up and you wanted to sort of either, you know, well, never copied, but someone, you know, was a bit of a hero to you? Uh, well, there
2: were lots in broadcasting terms. Uh, or other. Or um, I mean, there were lots of people that, that, that you wanted to you know, you admire their approach and David Coleman was, 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 was the particular presenter in uh, in my era, the great radio voices of the time he loved to emulate as well, Peter Jones, Ken them and all those, sort of never coming close. Uh, and then Des liner was just sort of starting out his career Des at, liner. Oh, at the same Legend. time and, and clearly had something that, uh, the, uh, that nobody else had. Um, but no, it was just you know being fortunate enough to be around, uh, and, and this would come later when I went to the BBC. You know some of the legendary names of sports broadcasting, and uh, you know it's hard not to learn um, to learn a lot. But uh, uh, at Anglia, you just did your own thing, really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We weren't religious. Right Far by fire. Uh. We weren't religious, and so we were. Oh God, there's some of the stuff that we had to work on up I mean, you, it was great because you had Norwich City with John Bond, and you had Bobby Robson down at Ipswich. And mm. stuff. Uh, but I remember we had the, the Peterborough Dike Jumping Championships we had to do as well. <laughs> <laughs> things like, things like, <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> there's nothing wrong <laughs> with that. Well, no, no
0: people very, love a bit of very, dike jumping. jumping these days but it's uh, yes you know, <laughs> it seems to work in Anglia anyway <laughs> um, so
1: moving forward through into the 80s um, ITV Moscow Olympics um, that must have yeah. been a, 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 a break and um, yeah. and and a very interesting experience tell us a little bit about about that
2: well, yes, it was. And it was a complete surprise because I'd been at Anglia about two and a half years and, and, and you know, just sort of scrabbling around learning the trade as a, as a regional broadcaster. And then in 1980, ITV had the uh, the Olympics along with the BBC. Uh, and in, in those days, ITV was a conglomeration of about 16 companies, you know, TV South, and you had Granada, and you had Central, and Anglia, and, and everyone else. So they had to sit down and organise who from which company was going to do everything. And they the, the meetings went on for about a month. And uh, uh, who was going to be chief engineer? Who was going to direct this? Who was going to do that? So, and um, there was a wonderful guy who used to run ITV in those days, John Bromley and now he was a legendary guy that, that you learn lots from uh, and he got to the end of his tether and he said right who's going to present it and he said I'll tell you what he said let's have somebody that no one's heard of and then you know there can't be any argument and he rang up Anglia Television and uh, you know who have you got who have you got and he said, well, Steve Ryder is, uh, is our chap he has been here a couple of years tell him he's presenting the Olympics <laughs> and uh, and that was it and uh, wow! <laughs> and off I went uh, the things evolved from there because I was due to be part of the presenting team in Moscow. But then came the, the 1980 boycott. So they moved uh, a part of the presentation back to London. So Dickie Davis stayed in London. Uh, and I became the presenter in Moscow. And, uh, you know, I'd never done anything on the network before. And then suddenly there you are in, you know, the biggest uh, arena of all. And um, and it was Sink or Swim. Uh, you you mm-hmm. either completely cocked it up and were never heard of again uh, or you or you managed to survive and uh, you know I was lucky to uh, not to bump into the furniture too much and uh... <laughs> Well, you, you're famed for this, you know, calm, laid-back, presenting
0: style. That must yeah. have, you know, served you well. Have have you developed that, or has it just been a, a natural thing for you? Is it a coping mechanism almost?
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's drugs mainly. Yeah, um, works. Yeah. That works. <laughs> Once they wear off at the end of the programme, you go, I've got all over the show, but it's... Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: when the camera cuts. Uh. To be honest, you know, right at the start... Um, I mean, everyone gets nervous, but when I went to Anglia, I—I um, I mean, the nerves were a big problem, uh, and uh, and also in radio. I remember I came in to do the the, uh, the sports news once in about 1975 at LBC, and you do sports news on half hour, and you know they got the main presenter of the programme and his guest there, and, and I think it was about the third bulletin I did. I walked in the door and I've been listening to the programme. And uh, I heard the presenter say, right, you know, we'll have more from our guest in a moment. Uh, but first of all, here's Steve Ryder with the Sports News. And I looked up, Michael Parkinson. <laughs> Bloody hell. <And laughs> you know, this was when Parky was, uh, you know, at the, the, the top of the tree. And I nearly died. And then when I went to, to Anglia, uh, I did a couple of, I think my first live insert into the programme um my parents came up and, and they went to the house where I was staying so they because you can't watch it anywhere else apart from going into the region. Mm. My parents came up to you know to see my uh, uh you know my debut and I, I sat in the dressing room and I thought, this is awful. I, I physically cannot cannot go on, can't do it. And um uh ten minutes before the start of the program, power cut. Yes, whole, <laughs> whole, I, I did do just that, and it was um, yeah. Better, you know, yeah. You know, all the way through uh, my career, it's 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 not been a problem because you you know you take it as a reassurance that you know if you're not feeling nervous, then you don't really take the job too seriously. But mm. uh, um, but talking of nerves, and, and and you talk about people who are. You know conquering their nerves uh, the most wound up person i ever worked with and uh, was des linem really i mean des was uh, you know it was we used to do sports personality of the year and um sue barker and myself uh, in the later years and half an hour before the program all you were, all you were doing was calming des down because everything was going to go wrong, this, that, and the other. Oh, my, it's a brandy and all that sort of thing. And we're all trying to, you know, reassure him that, you know, everything's going to be okay. And, uh, you know, it's only television and all that sort of thing. God. Mm-hmm. it's and funny, then isn't it? And the three it? of us would walk out to do sport and he would be, you know, Des Light yeah. And we'd be in bits.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. You, you, you never hear about those sorts of things, um, obviously. And, and you see people like Des presenting, you're like, he just look. he exudes calmness um, as you do um and I, th- I don't know whether it was an interview i watched with you um or it, it was someone else but they would talk about murray walker i think it was you actually and um you know obviously murray when you when you listen to murray commentate you um it sounds like he's doing it all off the cuff and it's all amazing and he's just you know fully yeah. in the moment but I, I th- i'm pretty sure it was you that was saying this that he he has scripts that he goes over again and again and again and again and again, yeah. and, but, and makes it look like he's doing it um, just in yeah. the moment. But in reality, he's been preparing
2: and, and pouring well, over he, things. Well, in fairness to Murray, I mean, he does do the proper stuff as well. But when we were doing the when we were doing the uh, the, the first few years of the touring car championship, it was all post produced, and uh, so the, the, the commentary needed to be dubbed on after we'd finished the edit. Mm. So Murray took this as a chance. Um, uh, to do it absolutely bang on because the way we used to put the Touring Car Championship edits together, nobody could commentate on it mm. because it, it, it was just a crash fest of, of every single incident that happened around <laughs> the circuit. And, and so Murray had to sit down and, and sort of create some sort of narrative uh, that made sense of it all, but you know he really sort of pushed the boat out. We had to put him up in a hotel overnight because he he took forty eight hours to do this. Yeah, and uh, and then he would he would dub it, and we would we would all have to sit there in the dubbing theater with Murray uh, and listen to the replay. You know, very <laughs> so on. But he was he was wonderful, and uh,
1: you know, bless him, he. he, he he really helped put the, uh, the championship and motorsport on the map. Uh, 100%, an, an absolute hero. We'll come on to him more later. And let, let's fast forward a little bit. So uh, 1985, you take over from Harry Carpenter as um, BBC um, presenter of Sports Night. Um, and then I think the first time that I really became aware of you was um, in the 90s um, with Grandstand, which became this sort of institution that everybody loved. Um, that must have been a great, great gig to get.
2: Well, it was, and, and, you know, it was a bit like that moment in 1980 where, you know, you parachuted in to do the um, um, uh, the Olympics. There was a feeling, you know, I, I didn't, I'd didn't, i done World of Sport with, with ITV from 80 to 85 and bits and pieces and so on. But there was always a feeling that the BBC is where you needed to be if you wanted to make progress in sports broadcasting. So my agent said, you know, why don't we, you know, just flag up a lunch with the the boss and, you know, we'll all meet each other. And we met in this uh, hotel in Park Lane, uh, Jonathan Martin and John Robinson, who was the editor of Sports Night. And he was always a man of few words, Jonathan. And and before even the menus had arrived, he said, right, uh, nice to meet you. He said, we want you to take over from Harry Carpenter on Sports Night um, within four or five months. Uh, We want you to eventually take over the, the golf presentation from Harry Carpenter. We want you immediately to do a minimum of 25 editions of Grandstand a year. Uh, alongside Des Lines. Ly- and, yeah. and uh, you know, there was no discussion or anything like that. And uh, uh, and he said, um, you know, you, you'll probably want to talk about money. He said, but Harry was with us for 25 years and never had a contract. And, um, uh, you know, we anticipate you, that you'll be the same. And, you know, 10 years, I never had a contract. Oh, um, God, uh, how times have changed. And, and off you go. And, and, you know, there was that sort of longevity. But the great thing about... Grandstand, which was the initial program that I was lucky enough to work on, is is that if you're a presenter, you know it, it is like a, a smorgasbord of material just passes by you every weekend, and, and and you can take your pick of what you want. You know, if you want to relate to rugby in particular, or you feel a particular empathy for motorsport or cricket, then uh, the ingredients are there for you to get more and more involved. Uh, and for me, it was. Um, uh, a connection that I already had with motorsport, that you were able to develop that through Grandstand. But nowadays, if you're going into sports broadcasting, the, the options are huge. Uh, but in a way, it, it's far more diluted. If you want to be a, a presenter, the first question is, well, do you want to be a motorsport presenter? Mm. Do you want to be a cricket presenter? Mm-hmm. There is no opportunity existing now for you to present everything. Mm. Uh, and so... 10 years we had just lived the life, you know, one weekend you're doing Wimbledon, the next weekend the British Grand Prix, then you're off to the Olympics, pop back to the Open and and, and so on. Um, it doesn't happen anymore, but I was just in the very, very lucky position of being uh, of being a presenter at a time when uh, when the BBC was absolutely dominant in yeah. terms of... Uh, do, do you think
0: that it's it's right that um, sports broadcasting is a little bit more diluted? I suppose because I suppose the you know look at Sky, they they want their one presenter to be so focused on that rather than having you know spread spread all around you know Sky's coverage of whatever it is yeah. or whatever broadcaster. Do you? I mean, there's I think there's sides for both of it, but interested to get your thoughts. Uh,
2: well, yeah, it, it, it is. Um, uh, I mean, you do become. Uh, absorbed uh, in one particular area and I remember when I eventually went from from the BBC back to ITV in 2005 I had an offer from ITV to come back uh, and just specifically do Formula One mm-hmm. and and um, and that appealed to me because, you know, despite what I said, twenty years of doing absolutely everything, mm. you know, being an expert on rugby one week and an expert on, you know, taekwondo the next, is it, a bit wearing. Yeah. So I thought it would be great to come back and throw everything at uh, at one sport. So so I did appreciate that, but it's uh, it, it is the fact that you know that option doesn't exist anymore, mm. and, and you fear for for people and it was a lesson not a lesson that I learned but it was an experience that I had that when you go back to ITV you throw your heart and soul into being um, Formula One presenter four years later they lose the contract yeah and and suddenly you're not you know where are you going and uh, the next outlet has got this team in place and and you know, you're starting all over again.
1: Yeah. yeah. It, it feels like on radio, there's still a little bit of it. You know, there are certain radio presenters who, who seem to move across different sports a little bit more. And there's one or two, I guess, on TV who, who have dabbled in different sports, but not at the same time, like Jake Humphrey moving around from F1 and yeah. football and Vernon Kay. I think he did American football at one point and now Formula E and so on. So it's um, it's interesting how people flit about. Um, let's, let's focus a little bit on the motorsport side of things then. So um, obviously... Um, we all know you from uh, British Touring Cars, but also Formula One. D- do you have a, a preference with those two um, types of motorsport? Is there one that you enjoy uh, working on more than the other? Uh,
2: I love the Touring Car Championship uh, uh, and I was lucky enough. Um, I keep saying lucky enough. But you know, it's, it's true. I was lucky enough to be you know, around Colin Chapman and Lotus at, at, at the end of the 70s. Uh, which was a fantastic era, seventies into the 80s, A fantastic era of, 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 of Formula One. I have to admit, when when I came back to uh, to Formula One in two thousand and five, having left it, you know, broadcast terms in ninety six when when the BBC lost a contract, came back in two thousand and five, and he had the excitement of Lewis Hamilton, but the corporate structure and the uniformity of the sport just. Left me cold, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know everything was micromanaged and uh, uh, and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not a criticism. It it, it was it was just myself contrasting that with the experience of wandering around the paddock and being able to walk into any motorhome and talk to any driver, and you know, uh, and and just be a lot closer to the sport than you were able to do in uh, in modern times. Touring car championship is is a sort of. Recreation of that kind of atmosphere. Everyone is approachable, and uh, yeah, um, mm. you know, nobody is is, is, is particularly full of. Themselves. We certainly found
0: that, didn't we? Yeah, we went to Donington last year. I think it was the first time I've actually been to a British touring mm-hmm. car race, and the freedom you got was, I, I you know I've I'd only ever experienced Formula One previously at it being yeah. in, a, in a pit lane and it was it was I was like I don't, I don't think we're allowed in here like I think who do we have to ask like come I think, on in not yeah. no come on in it's fine have a look at the car do you want to do you want to chat to this guy yeah he's free let's do it and I was like this is ridiculous but so nice yes. freedom just makes for way more uh, entertaining more
2: relevant broadcasting I think it does and it, and it helps develop the personalities and yeah uh, and so on and it's it's uh, but that was how it was in eighty three mm. and four, uh, and uh, you know, I remember the, you know, when we used to go down and, uh, you know, Nigel Mansell was 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 in his prime, and he he would have a a motorhome parked in the infield with a white picket fence around it, and and sit in his deck chair just talking to people on on a Saturday afternoon after qualifying. Brilliant. It was just you know no sort of. Uh, you, you know, sort of uh, burdensome timetable of media interviews, or sponsor this and sponsor that, and so on. But um, that, you, you mm. heart back to the old days. Do you? Um, what do you think of Formula One today? I think, uh, from my point of view, I would love it to become a little bit more human. I, I, I think. Um, I think it needs to be rationalised. I think I think the experience of the virus of the last few months has concentrated a lot of people's minds, and, and it's mm-hmm. concentrated it uh, in terms of at last getting the cost cap uh, through, and uh, that is essential because you know you can admire the the investment of a Mercedes or a Ferrari, and you can admire the the kind of technology that is the result of that. Uh, but if you haven't got a race uh, then, then the whole product is meaningless and unless you can preserve the back half of the grid and, and, and make the thing sustainable uh, not only for the for the grandees who have dominated the sport but for the new teams and the new organisations who want to come in you know it's like promotion and relegation in football you've got to have that com- competitive structure uh, uh, so I think it's moving back in the right direction and I um, I think Liberty have come in with a few interesting ideas. Um, uh, I think they needed a little bit more guidance than than they've had, but I think they're starting to get things right. But um, I would like to see a smaller schedule. Uh, I would like to see the whole sport becoming a little bit more relaxed. Um, And I know it's never going to be... Uh, it's always going to be a slave to budgets and expenditure and so on. Um, but it, but that can be dismantled just a little. And yeah. if somebody can think also uh, about the show, about the weekend of a Grand Prix, um, I mean, is it enough to see cars trundling around in a rather dispiriting way on a Friday when, when you've got 45,000 mm. people there. Yeah. You know, you, know you, you, you really can't shoehorn anything else into a Saturday. That, it needs a show. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Touring Car Championship is a very different animal and, and, and it's unfair to, um, to uh, you know, compare the two because one is much more sort of nimble and flexible and, uh, and so on. But, um, you know, you like to think that a Sunday on a... <laughs> touring car weekend is, is is value
0: for money yeah absolutely that's <laughs> I was thinking it sounds like you get way more value for money with British touring cars than you yeah. do Formula 1 and yeah. yes you can't compare because you know they are two different sports uh, but you know they're both motorsport and you know they both have fans that attend cars yeah. going around tracks so there's yeah. you know what's going on here yeah. It's just so hard.
2: The, the, the chorus that surrounds F one is, is, you know, where is, you know, we know who the champion is going to be, mm, and yeah. it's going to be where are, the, where are the surprises and so on. You know, that that, that is becoming louder and louder, and uh, and I think um, uh, I think it needs to be addressed. You, you've got a top man there who's trying to drive it on in Ross Brawn. Uh, you've got. Uh, an army of marketing people at St. James yeah. doing I don't know as what, well, but it's uh, a yeah. Uh, but that's another
1: story. But yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it, it feels like it's starting slowly to head in the right direction. Now, I think over the next couple of years, you know, like you say, with the budget cap, which is is considerably lower than than some of the bigger teams would probably like, is going to make a difference. The new aero package that's coming in in twenty twenty two will will hopefully make the racing more interesting. So, touch wood they can do something. And it is difficult when you're dealing with such big names like Ferrari and Mercedes and McLaren, and getting everyone to buy into
2: ideas and get things pushed yeah. through is is a challenge. Yeah. Um, one thing, I mean, I wasn't going to drone on about it because I'm famous for it, but uh, the, the one thing um, where I do still relate to F1 in, in terms of the work we're trying to do, because I come from the 70s, because I come from the 80s, uh, I remember through the 80s, after Bernie took over, every time you went into a you know, pit lane with a camera on your shoulder, you, you'd be recording fantastic stuff. That all is piled up at Biggin Hill. And I've been trying to convince Liberty and various other people involved in FOM that there is about 30,000 hours of Formula One-related material, non-race material, that has never been researched, never been touched. And the stories that could be told from that archive are are just Mm -hmm. unbelievable. I totally, totally agree.
1: And actually, I was at a conference, where was it? I can't remember where it was. Maybe it's a Black Book or one of those. I'm not sure. And you were interviewing um, one of the top guys from Sky, and you gave oh. him a really, really rough ride about that. And he and and he was really sort of trying to dodge the question and didn't really give an answer. Well, but
2: well, I you know I can't understand why you know what the objections are to to, to actually being creative with this material. So what we've done, and in particular because of the the fact that it's the 70th anniversary of the Formula One World Championship, uh, uh, a major documentary was commissioned by FOM, uh, which hasn't been delivered because they couldn't, uh, well, they couldn't get into the Biggin Hill archive, really, uh, and they couldn't really access everything that happens before 1981, because that's, you know, the rights are held elsewhere. Mm. So we went to the BBC and said, hey, do you know what you've got in your archive from 1950 through to 1981? And they said, well, you know, it's not very much, uh, and it's not worth researching. Uh, and said, so, well, can we research it? Uh, and they were a little bit reluctant because nobody really takes that approach to you know, BBC archive research. And, uh, and we went in there four or five months ago. And we've identified over... <laughs> Probably over three, four hundred hours of F1 material from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, which the BBC are now turning into a a three-part documentary next year. But it is the complete story of the formation of the Formula One World Championship, not just race, race race. But it is all the old programmes that you know tell the story of you know Ken Tyrrell and all the old wheelbase programmes and uh, uh, which have never been seen since the day they were transmitted. Wow! So we're working to bring all that uh, on stream into the market. We put a thing on the um, the BBC website just a few weeks ago with uh, uh, on the anniversary of the 1950 British Grand Prix. Yeah, uh, an old newsreel that we found uh, telling the story of the the first Silverstone Grand Prix. And I know footage is around of, you know, the 1950 British Grand Prix, but this was the complete newsreel production. Oh, wow. Uh, which had never been seen. That's still up there on the BBC website. But we'll it's, we'll um,
1: check it out. Well, it, may, it makes it even more frustrating that that Sky won't give up um, <laughs> what,
2: what they've got hidden away in, in the vaults there. Well, it's not Sky. It is, it is, FOM, right? And uh, you know, I'm, I'm loath to be too critical because they've got so much on their plate. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and you uh, need it. <laughs> yeah, be it, yeah. But uh, you know, when um, uh, you know, we've 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 had long discussions about it. Let's just put it like yeah. that. Mm. And I think that hopefully now that they see. What is available from a different source, i.e., the BBC, starting to take that material yeah, seriously. Might encourage hopefully, them. hopefully, it'll be the trigger for them to to think, "Oh, hang on," because this is the material that um, that gave us the Senna documentary. This is the producers of Senna went into the the Biggin Hill archive um, at the invitation of Bernie for some reason, and uh, they were working on a half hour, maybe forty five minute television feature, uh, and they came away with a three hour feature film, which because the material they found was such a surprise and of such good quality. But, you know, that's where we're... Well,
1: we've got to keep prodding. we have got two more advocates here, so we'll, we'll prod as well. One day we'll get there. Now, listen, Mr Ryder, this is the most important part of the show here. Very, very important. We have a very competitive quiz, and I will hand over to my esteemed colleague to introduce
0: you to Motor Mouths go cool. on Mr Steve Rider. welcome to Motor Mouths the hardest quiz in motorsport uh, there is a leaderboard of over 20 people we've uh, subjected to this quiz nice. um, there are 13 points up for grabs okay mm-hmm. and uh, the quiz questions are all related to you and your career so hopefully oh. that stands you in a good chance of getting the answers right but yeah. it doesn't always work out that way yeah um, okay.
2: I'll just get Wikipedia up.
0: Uh, <laughs> band, not going to help you, I'm afraid. Especially if it says you're born in Dartford. I don't believe any of that. Um, so uh, we've got four clips that we're going to play you, which hopefully you'll be able to hear. Uh, yeah. And then have a listen to the clips. And uh, a bit like Question of Sports style, I'll then ask you a couple of questions about the clips afterwards. Really? Um, okay, shall we start with clip number one? Yeah, here we go. It's good
2: and it's the right thing to be positive about the BBC when you leave. I mean, I told, when I told the BBC to piss off, uh, I, I, forgot, I forgot to say all that stuff. And, uh, and I found the way back very difficult. But, um, I, but you must be very proud of what's been achieved
0: over the last three years, I'm sure. Okay, Steve, what were you talking about there? God knows. Um, <laughs> it was
2: probably. <laughs> Was it Sport Awards? Correct. That is one point in the bag. Yeah, it was Sport Awards. I was probably talking to, and we used to have a good old spa, um, to Martin Brandl or Mark Blandell. I'll go with, go with your first answer. Yeah. All right. Can I bring on a
0: prop here? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah, by all means. Absolutely, it. go for it. I'll give you the point for talking to Martin Brandl. Right. <laughs> we'll forget about it. And a bon- surely a bonus point for a prop I mean, and this is point for never been done before. Oh, it's, oh, it's a proper... Uh, taking yeah. it off the wall.
2: Careful, oh, don't do well, any well, damage. I can't get off the wall. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's glued on. I think I managed to get... Oh, well, anyway, it, it was a very nice um, cover of autosport. Can <laughs> you see that? Yeah, it's, it's in picture. We can see it. It was a cover of Autosport that um, that they were very kind enough to do for me after 25 years of uh, oh. the Autosport, and it's signed by uh, oh, Sebastian Vettel and everyone mm. else. And uh, you know, it, 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 I had such great fun doing that. We did 28 years wow. of the Autosport Awards, and they, it was a it was a unique occasion. And. Mm. Uh, a lot of good memories from you, that. You enjoy a
1: good spa on stage with um, with people, don't you?
2: We used to have, yeah, we used to have a set piece. I mean, I was never really sort of up for it, but then, um, <laughs> uh, you know, some things you just can't resist, but, it's, <laughs> but, it's, but I remember, you know, Martin Brundle was always, a, you know, a bit of a sort of set piece. And uh, Christian Orner was the one that you know you would come on with a lot of sort of serious points that you wanted to make with christian and and he would have the, his own agenda, yeah, of, I bet, you know, winding up and you know we, we, what can we go in this direction or that direction? And so, but the best ever was uh, was Bethel, uh, the first year uh, he came. and he insisted on coming. <laughs> Every year, even though every year, it, well, every year he was world champion, even though every Sunday night that we had the Auto Sport Awards clashed with the German Sports Personality of the Year Awards, oh. and, and he opted out every year from the German Sports Person and, and came to the Krovener. Yeah. And uh, but the first, the first time, okay, I mean, how old was he when he? It first game, probably, about, probably about. I should know this I
1: I, th- I think uh, I was 20s. at this early twenties. Yeah, 20s. yeah 20s. I was at this one it was the first time I saw Sebastian Vettel's personality
2: Well exactly because you know because you're world champion and you're getting the you know, the top billing you're the last on the stage and uh, Sebastian at that young age is probably changed didn't drink uh, but thought he might give it a go this night. <laughs> he was sitting there for about three hours and eventually got up on the stage about 10 past 11. And it was like the worst best man speech you've ever. Oh, no. <laughs> but he was terrific. And he, he was doing, um, you know, impersonations. We couldn't get, it was wonderful. But he's very funny. He's a funny guy. <laughs> 20, 20 minutes. But the great thing about the sport Awards was that it was... Um, it was like a sort of club night. You know, you can do, you got the FIA gala and you got these awards mm-hmm. where everyone needs to be on their best behaviour. But here, there was, you know, it wasn't going anywhere at, uh, at that stage, although every sort of mm. recording device seemed to be switched. Mm-hmm. Um, and people could just let their hair down and, uh, you know, have some fun and, you know, say what they really thought and so on. And, uh, you know, I, I love doing it and, um, yeah, but all, all things change. anyway. Well, it always looked like a, an amazing event. For
0: one final point on that clip we played you, could you tell me the year in which you were talking
2: to Martin Brundle? I would say... 1997. Oh, oh no! Way off. Way out. You are way, way off. out. Oh 2011. Really?
0: 2011 you're talking oh, to him really? about taking over um, about uh, Sky taking over the BBC's uh, F1 coverage
2: oh really
0: yeah still
2: <laughs> two, two out of three it's two a difficult three, one, one that for me because you know I, th- I think I told the BBC to piss off I think every year on that day. Yeah. so yeah.
1: <laughs> I think there should be there should be a best bits on on YouTube of Steve Ryder's roasts
0: because uh, there's so many so many I think good ones programme uh, ready to be made. Um, okay, Tim, shall we, we have clip number two? Here it comes. The start of the season, yes. apart
2: from the two retirements in Malaysia, a lot of really encouraging ingredients from from the Williams' point of view. Yeah. Oh, not easy. Tough one. It's definitely me.
1: It is you. Yes, that's you. <laughs> no points for that one, I'm afraid. <laughs>
0: Um, who are you talking to? He's struggling, isn't he? He's
1: struggling. Definitely. Shall I give it to you one more time? No, that won't help. I'm trying to think. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably 2007. Close. Very close. 2008. 2008. Further away. away. <laughs> there you go.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh You're Mark Webber? Yes. Yes,
0: correct. There. You're talking to Mark Weber, absolutely. Yeah. And for a final point, can you tell me where what country were you were you talking to Mark Weber in?
2: Well, I mentioned Malaysia. Yes. But is it not Malaysia? What? You're talking about Malaysia. Could it have been Bahrain? Oh, no oh. not Australia. <laughs> of course we started in Malaysia didn't we
0: yeah see so it was the race after yeah but again solid consistent effort two out of three again so very consistent you're already you're streaks ahead of Karun Chandok already so that's uh, that's great that's not clip fun. an ultimate clip for you clip number three have a listen to this this is tough here we go
2: he's in the way of Alan Menu,
1: and he's not moving over Menu hits him Cox Cox goes through he's going to try and take the lead
0: I think this is quite hard. Any idea what's happening there?
2: Don't you play it one more time? Sure. Yeah.
1: He's in the way of Alan Menu, and he's not moving
0: over. Menu hits him.
1: Cox, Cox goes through. He's going to try and take the
0: lead. If you get any of this, I'll be so impressed. This is a harsh question. <laughs> uh, it's mean. It's not Mansell or Donington, is it? No. No. Uh... It is. I'll give you a clue. It's touring cars. Oh, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Very, very, very early days touring cars very early days uh, are we 93 at Silverstone oh uh, no but close yes. a few years uh, a, few, a few years uh, what did you say 93 a few years later I could feel play again I'll, try I'll try play to again, I'll again. To I'll try try I could definitely feel so a I'll nil listen listen names in particular yeah. here we go
1: he's in the way of Alan Menu, and he's not
0: moving over Menu hits him
1: Cox Cox goes through he's going to try and take the
0: lead Alan Menu, what a ledge! Is it Truxton? Oh no! <laughs> it's uh, it's Brands
2: Hatch. Oh, right. yeah, well, yeah, you yeah. no. it, it was the thing that's really Cox takes. Is that Charlie Cox takes the
0: lead? It must be because it's well, actually, it's at, so it's Alan Menu, Menu, yeah, in the lead, and he is being. Uh, on the final lap and he's being held up by Revelia yeah. who is the teammate of Cox uh, in an effort to help Cox get the win um, so that's what I was looking for there I'm afraid at Brands and, and that was in 96 96 alright I'll give you that but it's uh, Charlie a dear old Charlie was. You know, he went on to become commentator of course so tough round that one that was a tough question no, to be fair it's okay it's final right. Final clip before the bonus question. So final clip, let's play it to you now.
2: This evening, two places remain to be claimed in the fifth round of the FA Cup. We'll be concentrating in particular on events at Upton Park, West Ham and Swindon, and also upcoming events in Las Vegas. Nothing for Lloyd Hunnigan to regain, but a lot to hang on to. We set the scene from Vegas for Saturday's big fight. Hunnigan's defence, Marlon Starling's world title challenge.
1: What are you doing there? I was killing it by the sound
2: of it. it Um, (laughs) Damn good. I would say we're on sports night. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Can you tell um, me what year? Lloyd Hannigan, we are.
0: Yeah, try to leave you some hints there. I
2: would say uh, 87. 86. Uh, Oh, no. Higher, higher. 88. Oh, one eight. more. 89. There we go.
0: 89. Uh, because, and I'm going to give you the point because of all the wider <laughs> yeah. the wider context you've been able to give as well. Um, brilliant. Yeah, that was, of course, you uh, introducing headlines on Sports Night in 1989. So I'm going to give you three out of three for that one. So a strong end because I'm very, 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 very generous. Yeah. Extremely Your generous. Your bonus question is this. Approximately... How many points did Colin Turkington collect to win the 2019 British Touring Car Championship? Another tough one. I'll I'll give you approximately. So I'll allow within 10. Yeah, that's fair.
2: 140. No, you're
0: way off. You are way, way off. (laughs) three hundred and
2: twenty do you know the reason I I struggle with that yeah but on the the uh, touring car coverage you know we do it all from the pit lane yeah and uh, we have a tiny little monitor which a guy carries around on a pole and I can't read the bloody thing, and, so, I never know who's on pole or who's got how many points or whatever. It's
1: far too many excuses, Ryder. Far too many excuses.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> a racing driver yeah, excuses uh, Well,
0: uh, Steve Ryder, I can tell you on our leaderboard. I'm afraid with seven points, you've been pipped. Just. By Tom Chilton, He's oh no, twentieth place with eight points. You slot underneath in twenty-first place yeah. with seven points. Not last though; it's out twenty-five. So you're all right, and you're just ahead of Jack Aitken as well, Williams F1 reserve driver. So oh, you know, nice. some decent names to be around. And that is our overall leaderboard, season three leaderboard though, which is the, what podcast season we're in. That places you in tenth spot not bad um, mid save 11. 11 so
2: uh <laughs> <laughs> i've got so much more to remember than these young
0: uh, no you see david colfather gave us the exact same excuse mm. and now and i corrected him by saying that mark blundell is up there in double points figures so he? Um, yes he is um actually where is he on my he is sixth sixth is he? so there are no excuses i'm afraid none but <laughs> Give me Mark Blundell's questions then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, Steve, thank you so much for playing Motor Mouth. Well done, yeah.
1: Steve. It's good you. effort, good effort. Now listen, um, I'm... in intru- a lot better, by the way, if I would ha- had to
2: name how many points Mark Blundell got in the Touring Car Championship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Easier, we'll play that back to him. Mm. <laughs> so,
1: Steve, I guess over the years, you've interviewed, I don't know how many, hundreds of people. Can you put your finger on one of those horrible interviews where you just wanted the ground to swallow up and think, just get me away from this guy. What a disaster.
2: Uh, not really, Deb, because, it, I mean, that would be very rude to... Uh, yeah. I remember, <laughs> uh, you know, Scandinavians are always a bit of a challenge. And I remember Stig Blomquist once on the stage at the Sport Awards didn't, didn't seem to be able to summon up a single uh, meaningful answer and that was, uh, that was a bit of a struggle. No, I don't think, I, well, Uh, Jack Nicholas was always, uh, you you know, unless you started off on the right foot with Jack Nicholas, he would bury you. And (laughs) so you really had to to know what you were talking about. But, uh, but, you know, in the end we had some... No, I wouldn't say... I mean, there are some interviews that you you just know aren't going to deliver anything of uh, any great consequence. But there are others that, um, you know, are a challenge. But when you get them right, um, they are fantastic and the two that I would pick out as if your next question is going to be who are your favourite, yeah flip it round you much yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, from Golf Seve by Asteris uh, and, and of course Edwin Senna mm. and you know they both had the similar sort of Latin temperam, temperament and the uh, and the sort of broken English that sometimes makes an answer even more effective than if you you, you know you deliver it in the Queen's English. Mm. And Senna had a way of putting things, and Seve had a way of putting things that you just went, oh, wow! And uh, you know, there's just so much charisma and so much electricity there, and um, you know, Senna in particular was. Uh, it was amazing. Could my you
1: c- could you feel that with Senna? I mean, the, the only comparison I can make is um, I've been lucky enough to meet Lewis Hamilton a couple of times, and, and I got this sort of sense of um, he, he was incredibly intense, um, and you knew he was there. And I, and I know people of a certain standing carry a bit of an aura anyway, but I could really feel, you know, he shook my hand hard. He stared into my eyes. You know, he was very um, intense. Did, what sort of vibe did you get from Senna when you met?
2: It was just the impression that you got is is no matter, and I I was lucky enough, almost always to be able to interview Senna one to one in in a fairly uh, controlled location, Uh, and in those circumstances, unlike anyone else you ever talked to, you just felt that every question you asked him to him was the meaning of life. And, you know, he would answer it. You know, you, there is no such thing as a sort of throwaway question and a throwaway answer. And the the, 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 instance I always quote, we went to Estoril at the start of, I can't remember which season, uh, with McLaren, uh, and they'd had a great season the year before, and they were just launching their new car, getting it out, out on the track at Estoril for the first time. And, uh, McLaren got on to us and said, you know, would you come out and do some interviews and so on for uh, sports night and and so on? Yeah. So we went over and, uh, Senna was in the car and he did a few laps and and he came back in for a debrief and we sort of waited around, nothing, one hour, two hours, and then the light was starting to go. So we had to move up into the press area, uh, and another hour went past and we're on the flight out uh, at this point. And, uh and eventually we just sort of reached the cutoff where we just can't do the interview anymore uh, and the door came open and there was Joe Ramirez uh, uh, the manager of uh, Senna at McLaren uh, and Senna and they came in Well, oh, very sorry we're late, very sorry we're late uh, and Senna came and sat down and uh, we had we were so pushed for time that as we he was doing the mic up we just went into the first throwaway question uh, Ayrton you know <sighs> first time in the new car you know what's your verdict and uh, uh, and so on. and, uh, and this is my first time in the new car he said uh, uh, I haven't sat in the car for since October he said in November and December my team work very very hard they work through the night they work 20, they work through Christmas and into the new year uh, hour upon hour. And he said, they have made no progress whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and and Jeremy is in the background, oh no. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and off he went. You know, you, you asked me the question. I like, I'll oh, give you yeah. a straight answer, yeah. That's, that's the contrast <laughs> that you get these days. It would be the, uh, you know, the PR uh, speed kind of answer. But um, I mean, it, it obviously led him into some sort of curious territory when he started you know about, you know other things that yeah. were happening around the circuit wonderful yeah. wonderful what amazing charisma oh, that's, uh, that's and, amazing
0: and you've had, you've, you know to meet these people to chat with them you've had an amazing and versatile career as well outside of, of motorsport outside of broadcasting you know do you have any hobbies any interests that you uh, you tend to do while at home
2: no, we've got a we've got a super grandchild that we're looking after, and um, you know I, I tend to empathise with uh, with everything that lies there as well. And uh, no, I do a bit of running as much as possible, and you know try to keep a lot of golf, play a lot nice. of golf. Nice, good. Uh, everything that you meant to do as well. A... I was going to say I was shocked when I found out you were seventy.
0: I was actually shocked because you don't yeah. look it at all. <laughs> uh, not
2: shocked enough to keep it quiet though, but
0: yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit that out for you. No,
1: we'll leave it in. Um, you're obviously amazing at broadcasting. We all know that. Uh, what are you crap at? What are you useless
2: at? Uh, I don't. Well, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm useless at anything to do with cars. Oh, strangely enough. Uh I am. Uh, if you have a karting evening, I am always last. (laughs) If I get in the car, if I get any kind of, you know, chance to have a, you know, performance car experience, I am dreadful. And, uh, you know, the one time that 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 was underlined was when I stuffed Regard Rydell's Volvo into the gravel at Clearways. Excellent work. And uh, and there have been a few other instances of that. But, uh, you know, I've been invited to go on... um, uh, sort of endurance rallies and this I, mean, I can't think of anything you know the actual driving I would be hopeless having said that you know I was lucky enough to um, uh, to do a bit of co-driving I say do a bit of co-driving you know sit alongside yeah, quite a uh, <laughs> not quite like the rally co-driving <laughs> no. well it is no though, oh, oh, a, it is the uh, same yeah, okay when um, back in the early 80s I had a, a, a deal with or an arrangement with Shell uh, and I do a little column for Autosport, and they said, "Well, why don't we get you out in the field and, you know, do some some competitive motorsport?" And uh, uh, Pentiuricola was their was their top driver, who lived locally to me, and he said, "Well, why don't you come and drive uh, drive uh, co-drive uh, for me on the um, uh, the Audi International in Wales, which was the precursor to the uh, to the RAC?" And he said, "The important thing is that." you know, we just have a laugh, have some fun, you know, you know, good old crack, and and I said, well, you know, if it's on that basis, that's fine, I said, where do I turn up, and he said, well, we start in Aberystwyth, so come to Aberystwyth on the Friday night, it's a one-day event, Uh, but we'll have some fun, you know, so I turn up in Aberystwyth, and they're all in in the bar, and uh, a good night was had, and uh, I eventually said about half past 10, you know, what's the schedule for tomorrow, and uh, he said, oh, you, you know, wheels up at about half past six, I'm afraid. He said, but, you know, don't take it too seriously. He said, we're just, just going to have, we'll have a laugh. All it, you know, it's not important. And so I went to bed with a few beers and I thought, well, you know, we're going to have a laugh. And I came down the next morning at half past six and uh, Penty was sitting at a table facing the wall on his own. And he was wrapping tape around his hands slowly like this. And he looked across at me and I had a thumping head. And he looked across at me and he said, we can win this. <laughs> <laughs> and you got Michel Mouton and you got Tony Pond in the 6-Up 4. And it, my God, it was one of the longest, it was one of the most thrilling mm-hmm. days. I mean, the car was just sideways all the way around. I think we came third. Uh, and uh, I, I took the wrong exit in the first roundabout coming out of the hotel. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't allowed to make any other contribution. So was, <laughs> just sit there and be quiet. It was just watching him all, and he was sensational. Yeah, amazing. Was wow. Sensational. What an experience. Amazing experience. Yeah. Um, the, you remember the old Telecom Astro? Good car. Yes.
0: And, yeah. Oh, amazing. Very nice. Good old um, days. Good old days. Steve, what would you tell your 16 year old self now?
2: <laughs> I think if you're one on one with Bill Oddie at the Valley in front of 18,500, get down quicker. <laughs> that's the best <laughs> advice we've had so far.
1: And I couldn't agree more. Um, we have three final questions for you, Steve. Um, quick fire questions. Um, I'll kick it off, Harry, if that's all right. Um, what's got you excited
2: at the moment? Um, excited. Well, uh, people will laugh at the thought of me getting excited about anything. But what has really, um, um, yeah, excited, uh, um, The Last Dance on ne- on Netflix, Michael Jordan. Never. Been, uh, oh, yes, I want to uh, see this. Never being a basketball, but, you know, I've, I've been aware of basketball, but, yeah, Beat a Path to The Last Dance, Netflix, brilliant. And, and it's... It's a sports documentary. It's not a basketball documentary. It's about motivation and um, strength of personality and everything else. But, uh, yeah, that's what's got, got me going. Yeah, cool. Um, if not
0: broadcasting, presenting, what would you be doing? I'd like to have been a producer.
2: Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we did, I got involved in the production side when we were doing uh, the Legend series for... Sky F1. Um, mm. You know, a lot of the uh, uh, the production element of uh, of that was uh, uh, I got involved in. But um, uh, I would have loved to have played a musical instrument. And uh, uh, but uh, yeah, production. I did a. You probably haven't got time for another long story, but it's uh, crack on. I, when I was when I was at LBC, we all had to do everything. And, you know, you might relate to this in your environment. And uh, so one day you'd be doing sports uh, presenting shifts and then another day production. So I was producer on this particular day. Do you remember, um, you wouldn't remember, but uh, we had a, a breakfast morning program which was hosted by Bob Holness. Yeah, I remember Bob. Uh, Bob and Dougie Cameron. And uh, and that's, we're sorting ourselves out at 6 o'clock. They're the other side of the glass and I'm the producer. And uh, something had happened. A bomb had gone off in Seville, and um, we need to get some reaction. It's a Basque thing or something like that. And we had no contacts or whatever. And um, uh, anyone got any, any number for Reuters or anything? And uh, Bob Holness came on. And he said, um, "He said my mate Angus lives in Seville. Uh, he's a journalist. He'll give you a line." He gave me his phone number. And I rang um, Angus, and there he was. And I said, oh, it's, it's the uh, AM programme, um, Bob Holness. And something happened. And he got more or less straight queued onto air, this guy. And I sort of sat back, and Bob said, um, uh, uh, Angus, uh, it's Bob Holness uh, in the London studio. And he gets. Oh, she says, I haven't heard from you for about thirty years. He says, he said, how's the wife? He said, Do you remember those dads? and Bob's saying Yes, what I'm ringing about is the is uh, <laughs> the bomb explosion. A bit, what bombs that old boy? <laughs> it's, it's, just went on and on and uh, <laughs> I got a serious bollocking that, you know, before you put anyone on uh, you, you explain to them exactly what's required. Yeah, yeah. You, you live and learn. <laughs> I was the wife. <laughs> what well, I should have said to you at the start of this. actually. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm presuming she still um, hasn't given birth to a child downstairs. Um, I'll find out in a few minutes. But, no, uh, she uh, has. I, I mean, they're,
2: they're very capable. Well, you know, they're, I know. They're, they're,
1: they're, well, yeah. we're, we're having a home birth anyway, so does it really make a difference if I'm there or not? Not particularly, not you know, <laughs> she'll be fine um final question for you steve then we'll let you get on with your day um what are you scared of
2: uh what are you just scared i'm not sure well no sort of phobias or anything but i'm like any um any broadcaster i think des has the same dreams and i don't know what kind of dream sue barker has but you know, <laughs> let's not go there well every every broadcaster had especially in you know a live environment has the dream where you know you usually start make it as well the, 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 the you're about thirty seconds to one air and you've got no idea what the program is no idea what the script is and so on but uh, you know i'm i am i am not afraid of being found in those circumstances because i
1: think um, you know the touring car boys would look after me enough if i was about to go on air with no clothes on
2: Paul O'Neill probably wouldn't notice but I think I, think I, 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 I get the tip off from Tim anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lovely stuff well listen thank
1: you so much Steve for joining us and uh, it's been great hearing from you hearing some of the old stories and some of the names as well that we haven't heard about for a long time really interesting and um, such weird all this um, lockdown business gets taken away soon and we can get back to racing and, and uh, in fact it won't be long I suppose August August 1st 2nd is the first
2: race weekend in August we I think we're cramming 27 races into 8 weeks wow
0: like ok cool well Harry we'll have to make our way um, we'll to a few have of to these. Be there. yeah
2: absolutely yeah, yeah yeah
0: fabulous Good rider thank you so much yeah, for coming you. on the Motormouth podcast cheers thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast do make sure you give us a follow on our socials twitter at motormouth underscore instagram at motormouth underscore official and on facebook just search Motormouth you can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV create your own social profile interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy don't forget to like subscribe and review And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.